Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. One of mass incarceration's defining features is the way that it renders itself invisible. An estimated 2.2 million Americans are locked up in state and federal prison. That's somewhat smaller than the population of Queens and larger than the population of Houston, Texas, the country's fourth largest city. It's enormous but dispersed across jails and prisons all over the country, often tucked into out-of-the-way corners of a major metropolis or in remote rural areas. In reality, mass incarceration is the country's fourth largest city, but it's a phantom one. It has no city council nor any representatives in Congress. There is no newspaper dedicated to covering it. While a number of stellar reporters have launched major investigations, they face an uphill battle to uncover what's going on inside. Prisons don't just keep inmates in, they keep the public out. Even at this moment, when mass incarceration is facing unprecedented criticism, it is extraordinarily hard for people on the outside to empathize with people who they can neither see nor speak to. My guests today are Brett Story and Jordan Camp. Brett is a filmmaker who has made an incredible new documentary called The Prison in Twelve Landscapes. Her film shines a light on America's prison archipelago without ever taking a peek inside. It's a film that captures everyday America by portraying the people that have been disappeared from it by the prison system. In part, this is done by following their loved ones on the outside. In May of 2008, my brother got sentenced to 25 to life. By the time he got to his prison was around September, and I had to send him his first package. It took me all day to shop around at different stores, the sneaker store, the clothes store, the food store. I got that all back to my house. I don't have a box. So I had to go back out, spend $20 at the UPS store, one box, one roll of tape, packed it up, and I had to carry that heavy box to the post office. Then I paid the high cost to ship it at the post office. And then when my brother got the package, maybe 10 or 15% of the items weren't approved and they throw them in the garbage. So I really saw um, a need and I was pretty sure that I could fill that need. This film measures the blast zone of mass incarceration without picturing its constantly present epicenter, the prison, until the very end. Story is also a geographer and currently an SSHRC postdoctoral research fellow at the City University of New York Graduate Center. And she is a Sundance Documentary Institute Art of Nonfiction fellow as well. She also has a book on the way, The Prison Out of Place, which is forthcoming from the University of California Press. Jordan T. Camp is a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America and the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. He's the author of Incarcerating the Crisis, Freedom Struggles and the Rise of the Neoliberal State from University of California Press, and the co-editor, along with Christina Heatherton, of Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter, from Verso. Brett and Jordan, welcome to The Dig. Hi. Great to be here. Um, before we get started, uh, many viewers, unfortunately, haven't seen the film yet, though they will soon, I hope. Um, Brett, can you explain, generally speaking, what the film is about? 
Sure. So the Prison in 12 Landscapes, uh, at its most basic, is a film about the U.S. prison system in which we never see a prison. So the film is set um, almost entirely um, in outside space and in places and spaces around the country that at first glance don't seem to resemble um, the usual tropes associated with the with the criminal justice system or the prison system. Um, the film unfolds in 12 vignettes that I've called landscapes. So everything from a, a coal mine to a forest fire to um, uh, a downtown tech hub in Detroit. And it uses that journey across these landscapes to investigate the the reach and the consequences of the U.S. prison system. Um. The geography of the carceral state you show is not limited to prisons proper. In fact, I don't think it gets to a scene of a prison proper until the very last moment. Um, And I think what's really, one thing that's very interesting about your film is that it shows that carceral geography is American geography and vice versa. Um, Tell me why you decided to look at mass incarceration by looking away from the prison. Last night you said, something really interesting about how prisons have become less visible precisely at the moment when they have grown larger and incarcerated a growing number of people. Yeah, so I mean, one... One thing that I think about a lot, and I've been doing work on on, um, prison issues for many years as a researcher and as an organizer as well, you know, one thing that I've thought a lot about is um, the way in which prisons very deliberately operate as spaces of disappearance. So they disappear the people inside them, but they are also, and this is increasingly so, disappeared from um, public view in a whole bunch of different ways. And that's that really, you know... Um, has intensified at the same time as the prison system has grown to the degree that it has this this um, this scale that we now um, witness, and you know so that's everything from the way in which prisons are now for the most part built in remote rural areas, whereas they used to be built in dense. Um, urban spaces, but also the difficulty that people have, especially people who um, you know, have a sort of role uh, bringing information to public light, whether it's journalists or filmmakers or researchers, um, the difficulty they have getting inside um, penitentiary spaces or spaces of detention. Um, and that's just become, that's, it's become harder and harder to get inside those spaces and to do the necessary work of, um, of finding out what's going on inside them. So, 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 People, prisoners, are are disappeared on all these levels. But there's also a way, you know, I've been thinking about that as, and this really connects, I think, to Jordan Camp's incredible work and the work of other scholar, um, critical scholars and activists, thinking about the prison as a space of disappearance in in the sense that it also disappears social crises. So, you know, the, the prison is this building or we think about it as just this building or this just this sort of closed apparatus within the criminal justice system. But really, when you start to, to study prisons, you think about, okay, where do prisoners come from? Where, um, where are prisons built? Um, how and when have uh, policies changed to expand the um, numbers inside? You start to realize the way in which the prison plays a very important and central function in resolving all sorts of social crises, social crises that we're not even, you know, 
that we don't even associate necessarily with the penal system. Um, everything from, from social dissent to surplus labor. Um, and so I think that's another way in which the prison kind of is a, is a space of disappearance. And I wanted to think about this visual medium, this, the, you know, the medium of, of film as, um, as a, as a, as a offering a sort of possibility, um, to think about this problem of access differently and to think about it as an actually, actually an opportunity to suggest, actually, we can, we can both see the prison differently. We can see the prison operating in these outside spaces, but by seeing it in these outside spaces, we might have a chance to, f- to flip some of the narratives that are associated with the prison system. Yeah, it, it seems like um, not only are prisons rendered invisible, but that, that uh, Jordan, they, they render some of these contradictions that mass incarceration, at least provisionally, resolves invisible, that that's the work that um, prisons are doing. And I know that's uh, what a lot of your research has looked at. Yeah, I mean, I think Brett's film is significant for a number of reasons. And I should say that I hope everyone will know that she has a forthcoming book on the University of California Press that will go along with the film, and we're really um, eager uh, to see. Um, but Entitled? The, the Prison Out of Place. The Prison Out of Place, and it'll be out in 2018 on the University of California Fingers crossed. Press. Yes. <laughs> so, But I think that it's significant for, you know, challenging the idea that the prison is a reified institution. It locates the ways in which the logics of carcerality have to be understood as rooted in material conditions and, you know, intimately linked to the uneven development of cities and of regions. And so in that way, I think it dramatizes, to just kind of piggyback a little bit, the urbanization of the prison population and the ruralization of prison sightings. And that's really important because, you know, the bulk of the prison population comes from cities, right, where there's concentrated poverty, structural unemployment. I mean, to call um, this a crisis in some ways is to abuse language. These are permanent features of the political economy of neoliberal capitalism. And I think what Brett does by showing us L.A., Ferguson, Baltimore, Detroit in 67, you know, places um, like eastern Kentucky is to uh, highlight the race and class, uh, you know, functioning of the uh, prison population and, you know, to challenge us to really grapple with, um, to confront the carceral apparatus will mean to, you know, more, I don't know, rigorously analyze and engage with those conditions that gave rise to it. Before we get uh, any more into the film, I want to pause, Brett, and ask you to talk a little bit about the analytical tools you bring to this. You're a geographer, and uh, I was hoping you could say a little bit more about a discipline that many lay people might think is limited to the memorization of state capitals and how (laughs) that helps you think about mass incarceration. You know, it's funny. I do the crossword every week and I'm so bad on the geographic questions. (laughs) Like I don't know rivers at all. Um, Yeah, I mean, geography is a remarkable discipline, I I have to say. And it's, it's sort of very kind of simply can summarize, be summarized as not only the study of space, but um, a a discipline that's that's predicated on um, a a couple of analytical axioms, one of which is um, an an interest in materiality, the interest in this, this, the um, an investigation into the, the the materiality of the world around us, and um, the proposition that that the things 
we have and see and encounter in the world are meaningful and can and worth investigating and tell us something about the organization of power. But also, and this is really central to this film project, um, the idea that people produce spaces and spaces in turn produce people. So we are never outside of environment. We're never outside of the, the places that we make. And, um, and that precisely because the environment is not natural, it's not... Um, a given, we've made it, that, that that can be a starting point to investigate the kind of contingencies, historical and contemporary, that um, led certain kinds of spaces and environments to be created by people. And I think of the prison as just such a space. You know, we, we in, in this moment, sort of take it for granted that we would have these buildings, you know, and these spaces where we lock other human beings up. But the modern penitentiary system is 200 years old. You know, mass incarceration really has, um, has evolved over a 40-year period. You know, there's all sorts of historical contingencies that have led us to where we're at. And geography invites us, as a discipline, invites us to think critically about um, the organization of, of power and social relations that um, led that space and it's the other spaces it's contingent upon to be the way they are and also to help us think about um, how that those spaces might be transformed. Do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I mean, just a word on um, this historical contingencies point that the, I think the film does so well. I mean, one of the vignettes, you know, it's a series of 12 vignettes and one that was really powerful for me and also write about an incarcerating crisis was Detroit in 1967, right? I mean, this year we are uh, remembering the 50th anniversary of those events. You know, that was the largest uh, urban uprising in U.S. and world history. And what Brett does in the film is to challenge the taken-for-granted or common-sense ways in which that event has become not hidden, but burned into the collective memory uh, of the way that we understand and perceive this dramatic turning point in U.S. history. Not the least of which is because you give a kind of advanced political subjectivity to the participants in this revolt, which challenges the narratives of criminality, illegality, and chaos that have come to dominate the interpretations of the event. And, you know, you have this scene which is really powerful where you talk uh, or the film describes or quotes uh, Lyndon Johnson's response to that uprising, right? And he says, uh, this is not civil rights protest. You know, this is crime. And crime must be dealt with swiftly, certainly, right? Um, and this uh, justified or purported to legitimate the military uh, deployment um, to crushed the insurrection, right? And that is a major moment in the film. But it also, and I wonder if you could say more about this, you, the film talks about how initially the state deployed uh, black troops and that, you know, this was a mistake because they identified with the rebellion and they ultimately had to pull the black troops. And when they deployed the white troops, it was experienced then as this kind of spectacular instance of racist state violence. So, yeah, could you say a little bit about the work that that does? Yeah, I mean, the, the so the scene is made up um, 
entirely of archival footage from this uprising in Detroit in 67. And then, and then uh, I use audio archives from Lyndon B. Johnson and um, George Romney and, um, and uh, President Nixon when he declares his war on crime. But the scene begins with an uh, audio archival interview with Geronimo Pratt. The, the Black Panther, who describes having been returned from Vietnam as a soldier and being deployed to quash this rebellion, this majority black working class rebellion in Detroit. And, you know, saying what a mistake on the part of um, the state that was, because he and his, his troop, which were, you know, pre- predominantly also African-American have come back from fighting an unjust war, a war that they knew while fighting was unjust and oppressive of other poor people, um, to be asked to, to inflict the same kinds of control and violence on a community of people that were fighting for civil rights and liberation. And, um, and as you note, Jordan, you know, what he describes is a, is a sense of common cause that was instead produced out of the, um, the, uh, the deployment of, of those troops, you know, um, rather than what the state hoped, but, which was, you know, the um, division, um, increased division of working people and people of color um, and the infliction of violence from by the guards and the, or by the um, the soldiers um, onto the the protesters, and I think that that you know that's a sort of historical moment. And there aren't many historical, there aren't many other scenes in the film that um, point so directly to a historical event. But the hope was really both to re-remember and sort of re-narrativize what was happening, not just in Detroit, but cities all across the country at this moment in the late '60s and early '70s, but also Think through, think through the what's happening in that moment and the voices we hear into the present day. You know, this film was made during the sort of um, height of the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, you know, Standing Rock um, was happening. You know, as the film was coming out, and we hear the same things. We hear our politicians try and undermine the the calls for justice uh, among protesters by calling them criminals. And that category does so much work. You know, to call someone a criminal does so much work in our society. And we need to be very suspect about um, how it's used and why it's used. Well, it's arguably it's a language that helped get our, the current president elected. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. You, you draw a line from Detroit um, in, in 67 to um, Baltimore and Ferguson today, um, and those are some of the more, I guess, overtly or conventionally political parts of the film. A lot of your film focuses on the everyday and the um, banal. And one one thread throughout the film that I find really poignant um, are the, the radio messages um, or calls that uh, loved ones make to a radio station so that, they're, so that prisoners can hear them. And at first, it's not entirely clear what, what they are. I'm one fishing yesterday morning. Just went on one down to Ed Island by myself. Caught a couple of catfish and a couple of perches. So uh, that's what we had for dinner today, catfish and gravy. Uh, other than that, ain't much happening here, man. I hope all is well for y'all guys, man. I sure wish y'all could be home for my wedding. I'm going to go and tie this knot one more time, and that'll be it for me. But uh, that's all right. When y'all do come home, we'll be here waiting on y'all. 
if you're a brother sitting here on the couch with your uh, niece and nephew. Or sitting there hanging out, we figure we'd leave you a shout out. Keep your head up, man, and stay safe, man, and hope we will see you soon. All right, bud. What did you see in these calls that people were making, not directly their loved ones, but publicly making mm. uh, via radio? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love... Um, Sound is a sort of layer in um, films, and I think you know what I love about about films and what I think films can do that maybe other art forms can't do is create dissonance and dissonance and and even juxtaposition because they've got you know there's a visual element and there's a sonic element. And I myself actually come out of radio and um, many, many years ago used to have a radio show that was made up entirely of prisoner voices um, in the province of Quebec who were calling in. And we actually wouldn't even talk about prison issues. We'd talk about mayoral races and environmental issues. But the point was that these these calls were a way to um, refuse the, the isolation that's really built into the prison system. So... Um, I, you know, I was really interested, as you know, Dan, in this in this project, in sort of thinking through um, and and finding a cinematic form to express the kind of like everyday banalities that also structure um, life for incarcerated people and their loved ones. Everything from sending packages to loved ones to to waiting in line to get on buses, and I think you know, there's a way in which again, related to this sort of proposition of the, 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 the prison being a space of disappearance, that, that the organization of isolation, the individualization of disorder, the individualization of poverty so that it's someone's, someone's poverty is, is their fault and that they can be punished for it um, is, is deeply built into the fabric of what the prison system does and, and requires in order to maintain legitimacy. And so in the sort of everyday acts of loved ones um, and people on the inside, one also finds these kind of micro-refusals of that isolation. And I think these phone calls are a really good example. And it's made really hard. So one thing we know about um, about prisons um, and jails across the country is that many of them have very exorbitant... Um, if, if you can call in at all, there's the... The rates for making phone calls are really exorbitant, exorbitant, and um, and uh, it's a real impediment for people who are just trying to call in and and um, maintain contact. And so, um, there's a radio station in a small town in eastern Kentucky, um, out of a, a cultural institution called Apple Shop. At this radio station, there's a there's a show um, that came about sort of organically after um, someone just called into the show and said, hey, my loved one is at Red Onion State Penitentiary, and I know he listens to this show every week. Uh, I, have, I really need to get a message to him, and I can't call in. Do you mind if I use this show to send him a message? And the person who was hosting the show was like, I can't, you know, that's just couldn't. It was such a surprise um, and so humbling for them to think about the show being used in that way. And so the, gradually the show um, develops so that it's entirely now made up as a, 
a call-in show where loved ones um, on the outside from around the country call into it and sent, and use it basically as an alternate um, phone line to send messages, everything from, you know, how their children did on the latest school test to um, messages about uh, family members dying. I mean, they really, the phone calls really range. And you can imagine, you know, inside these institutions, inside these, um, these, these buildings, the folks inside gathering around a communal radio or, you know, waiting each week to see if someone's going to call into them. There's a way in which it, it breaks the isolation in terms of allowing for contact that's otherwise very difficult, but also communalizes the experience um, on the inside as well as people listen to hear whether or not someone's calling in for them that week. Yeah, there, there, there are a lot of moments in the film that are about points of communication and, and connection between inside the prison, but even though we don't see that, and the outside. Um, another are the long bus rides that families must take to visit loved ones who are locked up. And they're, I think, for people who have not been touched by mass incarceration, um, they're a feature of the carceral landscape that a lot of people are not aware of, but they're pretty central. Um, because so many people who are locked up are from cities and major metro areas, um, and they're often in prison in very remote uh, rural places. Tell me about the people you met on these bus rides and what you learned from them. Sure. At first, you know, I first encountered um, even the existence of these bus rides in Ruth Wilson Gilmore's remarkable book, Golden Gulag, which begins and closes um, with uh, with bus rides uh, in California carrying loved ones to visit um, nearby or not so nearby penitentiaries. Um, And, you know, there's, again, and it makes sense to us, right, when they build prisons further away from the neighborhoods where most incarcerated people come from and return to, then they're and the state doesn't provide a means to get to those places, then then people are going to find a way. And so in states all over the country, and in, you know, I looked at New York in particular, um, over the past number of, of years and decades, um, these bus lines have emerged that um, make the long journey from New York to, you know, any number of the 54 institutions across New York State, especially the ones that are further away and closer to the um, the border. And so I started riding one of these buses, a bus that, that makes six stops, um, and one of its last stops is at Attica. And it's an incredibly arduous journey. I mean, these the buses are cramped. People, they're often late, you know, and the people who are waiting for them, and it's it's predominantly women, um, and sometimes their kids will wait on a particular street corner in Manhattan or sometimes in Brooklyn for, you know, for an hour or two hours while they're waiting for the bus with their bags, and then they get on the bus, and then they, you know, have a very hard time sleeping. Um, It's cramped, it's noisy, and the bus stops along the way, and uh, then they arrive at uh, the penitentiary where they're visiting someone and go through the visiting center and have a three or four hour visit before taking the bus on the way um, home. 
And, you know, it's a remarkable space because it expresses so much about how loved ones do time alongside the people who are in inside the penitentiaries. Um, but also it's like any social space. It offers, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult, but also offers um, a, a space for sociality. So one of the things that I you know, learned from, from Ruthie's book, but, um, other people who've done work around these prison buses is the ways in which they, they offer organizing opportunities, or again, in my experience, just small sites of resistance. So, you know, one of the women that I, I I remember this so clearly, one of the women I was talking to tell, you know, was describing to me how um, common it is for people to be uh, turned back once they get to the visitor's center. There's so many rules and there's so much arbitrary power on the part of the guards so they can say, oh, you're wearing the wrong shoes or you're doing this or that. You didn't bring the right ID and refuse them. Your pants are too tight. Your shirt's not conservative Absolutely. And so one of the things you notice is that the, the women who are taking these buses trade information and look out for each other. And I remember talking to one woman who was like, yeah, I always bring a change of clothes in case I get told that what I'm wearing is inappropriate because you can't even predict because they so much discretionary power. She's like, I bring a change of clothes for myself and I bring an extra change of clothes in case there's someone else who's also being refused. And those sort of moments of solidarity, you know, that recognize how hard, what an intense kind of labor this just the work of caring for people, the work of making sure loved ones don't feel alone, making sure the guards don't ever see their loved one as being alone or uncared for. That's an incredible amount of work. And to be able to to do that work, but also looking out for the other people and the other women on the buses who are also doing that work, um, is I find very moving and also demonstrates sort of the, the, the sort of shadow of the carceral one shadow of the carceral state which is the um resistance to it this the carceral state has never existed without resistance on the inside and on the outside and some of that resistance is spectacular and takes the form of protests and uprisings and some of it is in these everyday sort of moments and spaces of solidarity yeah i mean i'm glad you mentioned ruthie's uh book because you know in that last chapter on mother's rock as well as the, you know, the opening and the conclusion about uh, the buses, I think, you know, the film really does what she describes as a kind of, um, shows us the deadly drama of living in a, in a racial state and how that's, you know, lived and felt by working class women of color in particular, right? And I think that you know, Brett's work um, should be read alongside some really sophisticated geography delineating the kind of social consequences of the withdrawal of the social wage uh, under neoliberalism and the ways in which the downward pressure of cuts in social expenditure over the last 40 years and the massive investment in policing and prisons is, you know, felt on the bus or on the corner in Manhattan as you're, as you're waiting to spend that 12 hours. I mean, that socially reproductive labor could be mobilized in other directions, right? Um, And so in this way, though, I think it also suggests how, again, to to quote Ruthie, because she has, I think, probably written the best book of the political economy of the carceral state, the ways in which this kind of crisis of place has been transformed into a politics of, of space and that you know, that kind of caring work, as you say, can become a material basis itself for activism and for struggle. And so um, I don't know how many people read your film that way, but, 
it, it seems to me that it is a hopeful film in, in many ways, and not just in the scenes from Baltimore or Ferguson where you have masses on the move, which we're inspired by, but you know the ways in which you know as Gramsci might have this already existing activity can be you know mobilized. Um, so yeah, one uh, as you were saying, one of the things focusing on the sort of banalities of, of, of mass incarceration allows you to do is talk about, about gender and women. Um, and policing and mass incarceration are often told as stories about men, specifically a certain type of image of black men. Um, what is the story that you set out to tell about women and ultimately told and about the criminalization of, of families and communities and more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it, on a very sort of basic level, the film attempts to sort of do kind of two things at once. One is suggest that the prison, we, we can't and shouldn't think of the prison as just a building um, or as a sort of closed sort of system of power that affects and implicates only certain people. Um, and instead, those of us in the audiences who think of ourselves um, as, as you know, not not implicated or not bearing a relationship to the institution of the carceral system, actually do in all these ways in our relationship to the labor market and to real estate and to gentrification and so on. But it also attempts um, to demonstrate the the um, prison system as a wide and expanding at this moment of prison reform uh, web. Um, and and net a carceral net as well as a as a, as an institution and um, I think that that's where you know we can both recognize the ways in which and ask questions about why populations of of uh, women um, on the inside are on the rise um, but also how um, how the prison system you know has ha- it, it affects and transforms the lives of people on the outside who are um, heading households um, uh, left behind by um, the incarceration of, of their, the, their brother or their father um, and continuing to do all the work to, um, to maintain life and reproduce life um, with, you know, with this notable absence of the person who's incarcerated, including taking these buses, but also, you know, like the, the women those that, that I talk to who take those buses, they work two or three jobs. That's what they have to do to raise their kids and to send packages um, to their loved ones on the inside or pay for lawyers. And so there's an incredible way in which the carceral system needs to be understood as having this expansive and devastating um, influence um, that transforms and limits life for people, especially you know women who are taking care of kids and households um, on the outside. I read Brett's film as an intervention in the struggle in ideology and culture over the meaning of mass incarceration in this decisive moment. Uh, in some ways, you know, we're in this crisis of mass incarceration where it's. Uh, being widely critiqued, you know, we have these widely circulated images uh, that there's a kind of bipartisan, emerging bipartisan consensus against uh, mass incarceration and so on. 
And partly... Uh, or that there was. <laughs> or that there was before Trump's election, right? But even with Newt Gingrich, you know. Um, so, you know, it, it has become fashionable um, for politicians to kind of jump on the bandwagon. And I think what the Prison in 12 Landscapes does is to uh, help us tra- challenge that common sense ways in which mass incarceration has been depicted. And one of those ways, as your question suggests, is to depict the prison as this site where it's singularly black. And as you're saying that, it made me think of uh, one of my mentors was Cedric Robinson, the great theorist of the black radical tradition. And he would often say, we have to think about the ideological work that representing criminality or incarceration as singularly black does to relieve us from the more serious scrutiny that this uh, ideology does to displace the multiraciality of incarceration. I mean, after all, we've lived in this period that you're covering in the film to this massive transformation where the race and class dynamics of prison have shifted from majority white until the mid-1980s to disproportionately black and Latino. But sometimes when we talk about the disproportionality um, to our peril without noting, again, the multiraciality of the prison population. And that then, um, therefore, points to, and again to evoke Robinson, I think the kind of material basis for, for social change, right? It points to opportunities for change uh, in the present. It also, I think, um, challenges us to think uh, more seriously about um, the terrain of ideology why we have to take that uh, quite seriously when thinking about the politics of uh, mass incarceration, right? As Stuart Hall would often say, you know, the the stick has been so far in one direction around policy reforms, for example, that we neglect, you know, the ways that we can think about shifting ideology as a part of a political struggle. So I don't know if you had thoughts about the work you want to do in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it just makes me think about... um you know, the sort of lip service that can get paid to uh, the idea that race is a social construction and yet the way in which we're constant sort of like constantly failing to to elaborate what that means. And so I, you know, one of the things I was very conscious of and thinking a lot about, even in sort of coming up with the conceit of the film, was, you know, thinking about um, what is the work that images of incarcerated life do? I mean, we, it's not actually true that we don't ever see um, depictions of the inside. We're saturated with uh, depictions of life inside, and those depictions tend to take the same form over and over again, um, even in the best-intentioned documentaries. And they tend to take the form of, here's some images of an incarcerated black man. This, you know, I'm going to reveal, this film is going to reveal that experience, and somehow in that revelation, the the there's an idea of a public being evoked that's going to change that. And, you know, thinking about, again, both race as um, and anti-blackness as being produced and reproduced, um, and the, the role of the prison as an institution in the making of anti-blackness, you know, I think that there's a way in which those images can be quite counterproductive to their intentions and that, that sort of saturating... Um, saturating our mediascape with images, more images of incarcerated 
black life actually produces the idea and produces the conflation of blackness with danger, blackness with criminality. And I was really interested in, in a film that tried to tr- refuse um, that kind of imagery. Hey, hey, this is Dan once again. I'm chiming in to remind you to give us money. If you like the show, go to patreon.com. $5 a month or more makes you a fellow traveler, meaning you can pose questions to guests. $10 or more makes you a party member, entitling you to pose those questions and you receive a copy of Jacobin's book, The ABCs of Socialism. $25 a month or more makes you a central committee member, entitling you not only to call in and ask guests questions and to a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, but also to six, that is six books total, written by guests or friends of the show that we will ship to you each and every year for as long as you donate. To donate, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and now back to the show. Your film ties together stories of mass incarceration and poor, the political economy of poor communities of color in, in cities and the political economy of, of poor white people in rural areas. You have some really powerful footage from eastern Kentucky. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what you saw there? Sure. And I, I want to give a shout out to the amazing um, prison critical prison scholar Judah Shept. His, he's the person that first invited me to Appalachia. And, you know, I, I was sort of talking about this film um, at a conference or something in its early stages. And and he's like, you know, he came up to me and he's like, well, if you want you want to find an outside space that's demonstrative of um, carcerality, but also, you know, the way in which prisons are a new extractive industry come to where I do work, where prisons are being built literally on top of coal mines. And there's this spatial exchange, one landscape for the other, a coal mine into a prison site. And then also um, the exchange of of working bodies, so coal miners who've been devastated by the many decades of um, union busting and economic decline in that region, desperately trying to retrain as prison guards or believe that they might retrain as prison guards if only a prison would come to their town. So, you know, I, yeah, I traveled to eastern Kentucky to a couple of different counties, one of which was actually uh, Martin County, which is where uh, Lyndon B. Johnson declared the war on poverty um, many decades ago, um, and and also Harlan County and uh, Letcher County, where uh, which is an area where they're still hoping to f- to build the Bureau of, of um, Prisons is still hoping to build um, a new federal prison. And, and Harlan County is the was the site of major labor struggles. Yeah, and is you know famously documented in the film, the Barbara Koppel film, Harlan County, USA. And these are, this is a region that has, you know, um, devastating levels of poverty, unemployment, structural unemployment, you know, employment, unemployment for more than six months, um, uh, all sorts of health crises. And, um, and you know, the, the sort of, I, I was interested in, in just spending time there and talking to folks about um, how they were imagining the possibility of, of prison building, I mean, this is a region where there's been a spate of prison construction over the past 20 years, and and how that relates to their sort of ideas about um, 
the people inside or, or attachments to punishment. And what was so interesting for me was that I would have conversations with people in which they would, in the same breath, actually critique mass incarceration, but then also say, oh, yeah, but I hope they built the prison next, you know, in the, in the town next over. Um, I would love that. And so there wasn't actually the kind of racial animus and attachments to punishment that we presume are kind of the uh, emotional um, and, and um, ideological scaffolding of the carceral regime. Instead, there was a desire to work and a desire to feel like there's a future. And I certainly don't begrudge that. And I think actually that's an important, that offers up some important possibilities for common cause to be made between the um, people who are, who, you know, people who are incarcerated in disinvested urban neighborhoods where structural unemployment and underemployment is a facet of uh, daily life and also follows them, you know, is becomes deepened by their felony status when they get out. And these regions um, that people are starting to become more aware of, I think, in the wake of Trump's election, that have been abandoned. And to think about the, uh, you know, abandonment across these spaces, you know, across the spaces of, of uh, economic decline, rural white poverty, and um, urban black poverty or Hispanic poverty in the cities. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated those scenes. I mean, we know that prison expansion has been sold to rural communities across the country in the context of deindustrialization and kind of neoliberal globalism as, as job creation. And it's precisely, I mean, you know, if you've lived or worked in these areas, it might, you know, one of the people in the film says it's recession proof. That's actually quite true. Now, you know, scholars like, um, you know, that have been on your show, Marie Godshaw, Ruth Gilmore, and others have shown that, you know, most places it actually, you know, doesn't deliver on job creation or change the unemployment rate. But I think, and, and that's important, I think, basis for organizers that are listening to the show, right? That, you know, um, it shows that there's an imperative for redistrib- redistributive justice, that if we on the left can think of a way to articulate uh, a program to get people work, you know, to think about class politics of prison abolition. And so in this way, you know, Brett's film, I think, joins a conversation several decades old about, you know, that uh, organizations like Critical Resistance um, with Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, uh, shout out to Rachel Herzing in Oakland and others have been talking about for some time, um, which is you know, to speak frankly about how we can see this crisis as an opportunity. And one of the things, you know, I was thinking about, not just in eastern Kentucky, but you end with uh, Attica, right? Um, And, you know, we know that in places like New York, we've actually seen a reduction of the prison population upstate, right? And so there's, a, I think, a link between the rural and the urban in terms of organizing here as well. In that, um, I think you're partly arguing that, uh, alongside Alex Vitali and others, that what we're seeing is a transformation where maybe the state's willing to let go of some aspects of prison expansion in favor of transforming rural and urban spaces into kind of quasi, you know, uh, carceral spaces themselves. Is that uh, in keeping with your uh, analysis? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we need to be wary. We need to celebrate, um, you know, our successes. I I 
you know, there was a recent announcement in, in New York City that um, Mayor de Blasio is gonna, has promised to close Rikers. And there's been an incredible um, movement of an alliance between a number of organizations and activists who've been fighting for many, many years to close Rikers. And I think people should own that as a win. At the same time, as we should also note that in the same announcement, he said, we're going to open up you know, we were going to disperse that population among a set of new facilities that were going to open up across the city and its boroughs. And and to think of that, as you say, Jordan, as a as a um, as a, both a warning and an opportunity. If they're planning to open new facilities, um, it might not be the win that we we want it to be, but it's it is an opportunity to start intervening there and to say, you know, as people have done, you know, this is what prison activists were doing in New Orleans um, in the wake of Katrina when they had to um, rebuild the local parish prison. They saw that as an opportunity to say, okay, if you're going to if you're going to rebuild it at all, it's going to be built smaller. And they did that work for many, many years until finally it was, you know, the city council agreed to build it smaller. And I think the same possibility is there in New York. But I think we can ask, you know, as, as facilities are being closed, where are those facilities? Well, they're, they're facilities that are closer to the city. <laughs> they're, they're facilities that are co- on you know, sort of coveted real estate. So without being too cynical, I think we can both um, as thinkers and activists, um, demonstrate a critical sensibility and a, a scrutiny to these sort of, um, you know, moments of uh, that that signal a kind of downsizing of the carceral state, but also be on the ball to make sure that 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 downsizing of prison facilities isn't on the back of expansion and net widening of the carceral state in other ways. I mean. I wonder if you could say, because, you know, Brett's written this tremendous piece that I couldn't recommend more highly called The Prison in the City in the journal Theoretical uh, Criminology. And it joins a conversation among scholars uh, like uh, Naomi Murakawa who have uh, critiqued the ways in which liberals have helped uh, expand the carceral state, even in the name of, of critiquing it. And one of the things that you point to is in this moment that a lot of people have, you know, seen this crisis as an opportunity to promote ideas of justice reinvestment and to see the kind of million-dollar blocks in cities as problems and opportunities for change. But, um, you know, the long and short of the article is to suggest that this is kind of collaboration masquerading as critique with a neoliberal project. And I, I think that has big stakes, and I wonder if you could say a little more about the intervention. Sure. I mean, we. I, I. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that when the state it finds itself in a legitimacy crisis, and I think there genuinely has been a growing legitimacy crisis for um, mass incarceration in the carceral state over the past number of years, that um, a res- way to respond um, historically, you know, to such legitimacy crises is to rebrand. In a way, and I think that we can think about prison reform movement um, and its its rebranding of itself in terms that mimic critique and that appropriate critique of mass incarceration, and to be really wary of. So, you know, um, this this article that Jordan talks about is one in which I I just tried to investigate and follow um, 
the political life a little bit of a, a, a liberal mapping project that um, in its intention meant to demonstrate the high financial costs of incarcerating so many urban residents. And I think to genuinely suggest that that money, those millions of dollars that get spent incarcerating people might be better used and better invested in community infrastructure like schools and houses and so on. But in a, in a political context, especially like New York, where gentrification and real estate have as much power as they do, the, the discourse of those maps has really had a very different effect, which is to um, facilitate and justify using this, this critique of mass incarceration um, policies that are meant to sort of superficially... Um, transform perceptions of certain certain neighborhoods as high crime in order to um, bolster the um, the the speculations of real estate in those areas and the, the the reputations of those neighborhoods to make them more profitable for developers um, and so I think yeah I think that 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 it's not an I think that thinking about the sort of way in which neoliberal ideas of um, financial austerity are being used at this moment to um, organize um, so-called reform mechanisms should give us pause because neoliberalism has never been good for people. You know, financial austerity is not good for people. And financial austerity, the undermining of uh, worker bargaining power, disinvestment in um, the social wage and in in public infrastructure like schools and people, that is bad for people and it's productive of the kinds of crises that the prison system is then meant to absorb and mop up. And so prison reform that uses and is organized in neoliberal terms should be treated with skepticism. Just a word on this. I mean, she's not just doing like, you know, sometimes on the left we'll say it's the neoliberalism what done everything, right? But this piece is more than that because it demonstrates that you know, despite the rhetorical thing about justice reinvestment, that actually no funding goes back to education, no funding goes back to health care, no funding goes back to public employment, that it, instead it goes to expanding the carceral apparatus at the neighborhood scale, at the, at the urban scale. And I think this is really important when read alongside debates about broken windows, zero tolerance policing, now so-called neighborhood or community policing. I mean, you know, the gentrification and broken windows have long been policy exports of New York City, as Neil Smith had shown for so long. So I think this um, article has stakes not only for understanding the kind of historical and geographic specific ways that this uh, took place in your case study, but ramifications for not only cities around the country, but indeed uh, the world. Um, Neoliberalism has never been good for people. I think if I finally make tote bags for the show, that that's definitely (laughs) going on the side of it. Mm -hmm. This uh, discussion um, makes me want to turn to a specific scene in the film, um, which is perhaps the weirdest and most discordant part, but one of the most interesting, which is about um, the Quicken Company's uh, corporation's Mm -hmm. gentrification of downtown Detroit. Um, And we're going to play a clip of it right here. Let's talk about um, safety and security. This is the safest part of town. We partner with the Detroit police, the state police, the county, the border patrol. We all work together as a team. We even have secondary employment uh, officers 
that when they're off duty, they work for us in uniform. We have our own security, feet on the street, our own cars. We have bikers. We um, keep an eye, and it is awesome. And when our team members and our tenants and the community knows it's safe, they come, and they come. Because there's a perception, and then there's reality. And you're seeing reality right now. What's going on in the scene that at first blush isn't at all about mass incarceration? Yeah, so the scene, I mean, I, I, I you know, I set the scene in, in Detroit for a number of specific reasons, but I was also very cognizant to work against the expected imagery. I mean, Detroit is its own sort of at this point cultural trope we're used to ruin porn etc ruin porn right you're sp- if you're going to if you're going to produce images out of Detroit it's going to be of shuttered buildings and um, abandonment and the scene is set almost entirely in a glossy um, colorful uh, well-financed set of buildings through which we're being um, taken on a tour of by an ambassador for Quicken Loans, an ambassador for Dan Gilbert, who's um, you know multi-billionaire um, mortgage tycoon who's sort of single-handedly you know stylizing himself as Detroit's patron saint at this moment, and um, you know so this the scene is. You know, the, the film in general is, is, is set up to invite people to make some connections that aren't always spelled out explicitly for them and invite them to do the sort of work of trying to think through the prison as an institution of power, as a set of relationships that bears relation, intimate relationship to other structures of power. Good news that if you're listening to this podcast episode, you don't have to do the work yourself. <laughs> We're doing it for you. So. But now I'll just tell you what that scene means. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, I knew that I wanted to have a scene that um, demonstrated in some way the links between gentrification and the securitization of real estate, you know, the property relation, the, the centrality of real estate to urban revitalization and the way in which police, security, technology, um, criminal ordinances are put to work solely for the purpose of protecting um, the profit margin in these revitalized, so-called revitalized areas. And so that scene could have been set a lot of different places, but I set it in Detroit after reading a, uh, an article about um, Dan Gilbert's um, you know, m- multi-million dollar investment and, uh, in the downtown of Detroit and decided to take this tour of his holdings. And it was really, I mean, it, it was a remarkable tour for lots of reasons. It feels like there's so much was being expressed in this sort of whirl, whirlwind tour that actually took place over three hours through, you know, I mean, at one point we were in uh, a building that used to be, um, that used to house the the Federal Reserve and that's now been purchased by Dan Gilbert and re-outfitted and we, we were taken into um, uh, a gold vault, a refurbished gold vault in the basement where, you know, three people were sitting around a table having a Skype call with someone about whether or not to outfit the entire building in beanbag chairs. So there's a sort of a way in which, you know, <laughs> tech capitalism meets creative, you know, creative culture and creative capitalism meets um uh, the subprime mortgage crisis meets um, gentrification and and uh, real estate profit making in this space um, in downtown Detroit. 
you know, if you if you watch this scene and take this tour, you would you wouldn't be blamed for walking away and thinking, oh, Detroit's a predominantly white city. I mean, this is a, also the construction of a middle-class white space for tech capital in a predominantly black city that's been devastated over many decades. And at the time that we were taking the tour, you know, it was the, the water shutoffs were happening. People were being denied water, with the stuff of life, um, and and fined and jailed for so-called stealing water. I mean, it... it it really makes me think of Peter Linebaugh's work and, and you know, the, the production of not just prisons as a space of punishment, the, but the very production of crime um, and its intimate relationship, its historical relationship to um, dispossessing people of the means of their own survival. Um, yeah. I mean, could I, I just say that this uh, film should be read uh, alongside... Uh, Peter's uh, fantastic work about the kind of origins of the carceral regime in England and how he, you know, notes the criminalization of the wage as foundational to the expansion of punishment. And one of the things that he talks about that I think is relevant to this scene is the relationship between the revival of and the expansion of punishment and indeed capital punishment and the punishment of capital, right? And what this scene in Detroit shows is that the dominance of the fire industries, finance, insurance, real estate, and so on, that have underpinned, you know, the gentrification of urban uh, space is, you know, right at the root of criminalization, of mass displacement, that it sustains, justifies, and naturalizes uh, policing. I mean, there's those scenes where they talk about they meet with the police officers. And I know you, you talked about... Um, before, you know, the Manhattan Institute, which are the kind of ideological architects of broken windows, have had this sustained campaign in recent years to export the kind of New York model of policing uh, into Detroit. And, you know, this um, project of, of criminalization, of targeting, you know, jaywalking, uh, you know, public drunkenness, uh, you know, so-called crimes of, of disorder, um, is part of the restructuring of space in the interest of capital. And so the film, I think, helps make that kind of necessary abstraction concrete. I want to turn to another scene Mm. in St. Louis County where people speak about the fines and fees that government extracts from poor and working class people to balance budgets. You get stopped a lot at night on this strip right here. Starting right here, all the way down to Pine Line. There's a lot of traffic stops. Like I say, they just see who's in the car. You got a ball cap on and they can't see pale skin, they finna pull you over. It's still just the usual routine. Get out the car, I'm searching the car, I'm searching you, running your name. Why are you hurt? When you go to court, you better have some money on you. If you don't have no money to give you, give them, they finna lock you up. This scene to me seems to echo a, a, a theme of extraction throughout the film. Um, in this scene in St. Louis County um, through fines and fees, but in eastern Kentucky and rural areas in Appalachia, um, coal country going bust and then people looking to prisons for jobs. How do you think about uh, the role that extraction plays? 
Yeah, it's such a good question, and I, I am looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it as well, Jordan. And, and this is something, again, Ruth Wilson-Gilmore talks about the, the prison as an, an ex, as a extraction industry, and I think we can think about that in a lot of different ways. Um, certainly, you know, as you point out, in St. Louis County, County, you know, that extraction is is a very literal one. People's, people's money is being taken. Um, and so the situation in St. Louis County, you know, we're sort of made aware of this uh, part of the country in the aftermath of the police murder of Mike Brown and the uprising in Ferguson. Ferguson is one of just um, about 90 different tiny little municipalities that's been carved into that landscape. Um, and each of these municipalities, you know, within a very um, small um, uh, uh, geography um, outside of St. Louis. And each of these municipalities has its own um, uh, police department, its own municipal court. And so you might drive, you know, a three-mile radius and go through eight different municipalities. And if you've got a broken taillight, you might be, be, and probably will be if you're black in that area, stopped by eight different Um, police cars from eight different municipalities who then all fine you $300, $200 for that broken taillight. And so that serves a very, um, you know, specific ends, which is to fill the municipal coffers of a a set of communities that have seen their tax rates plummet or otherwise, you know, um, not getting revenue from uh, businesses or middle and upper class um, folks in the area. And so there's this, the extraction of, you know, uh, of money in the form of these fines and also the extraction of time. So people, you know, people's lives are organized by, um, and disorganized by the, the, um, this, this audacious, um, fining scheme and and the flooding of this area by police because they then have to go to municipal court every, uh, week maybe they have to do three or four that week in different towns. Stand in line for hours and hours. Go in front of a judge. Pay the fine if they can. You know, right now the um, there's a, a group of lawyers in the in the area called Arch City Defenders, and they've been doing really incredible work. Um, fighting and and suing municipality by municipality suing municipality by municipality and calling out it out what it is, which is. Um, the running of debtors' prisons, modern-day debtors' prisons in this area, and saying, you know, you can't jail people because they're poor. And you've got these judges who are saying, oh, you don't have $200? Well, of course you don't have $200 because you work for minimum wage at Wendy's, um, part-time, without benefits. And um, and so, you know, one thing people there will, will say is that in St. Louis County, you're stopped because you're black and you're jailed because you're poor. And that's really quite literally how it functions. And And... Um, yeah, so the extraction of time, the extraction of money is one way in which we can think of prisons and jails as an extractive industry. And in, and in both St. Louis County and in Appalachia, is when we think about extraction theoretically, is it something distinct from exploitation? I mean, I think that the focus on extraction is important because it's not as if exploitation is not an important feature of the contemporary political economy, but sometimes when people talk about prisons and exploitation, they think of the function, therefore, somehow prison labor or something like this, when we know that the you know, numbers don't just bear that out. I mean, you know, Brett has scenes where you have, you know, 
uh, firefighters being used as, as laborers, and that, that certainly happens. Are there places in Oregon or Tennessee where I think prisoners make blue jeans or, or, or things like this? But it's not the political and economic function. The function is of policing, and in this instance, is what Marx called primitive accumulation. You know, it's, it's actually, um, you know, that, that is aggressive targeting. Again, it's a zero tolerance, uh, broken windows logic. But it takes a distinct shape in Ferguson because it's not uh, like New York where people are walking a lot. They're driving cars. So they're, you know, you have that scene where um, a man says, you know, if you're black and you're driving through here, you're going to get stopped over and over again for the, you know, taillight, failure to signal and so on. So it's like broken windows to cars. And I think that's important. My collaborator and the co-editor of Policing the Planet, Christina Heatherton, has a, a forthcoming piece in Feminists Confront the Neoliberal State in which she talks about the ways that the situation that Brett documents in Ferguson is being reproduced in communities uh, of color, particularly poor and working class communities all across the country. And it, pl- it points to kind of explosive conditions. One case that she points to is you know, also in Los Angeles, downtown, where you have you know, um, Skid Row, the highest concentration of homelessness, policing, and poverty anywhere in the world. And so in this way, I think that the scene is symptomatic, if you like, of this broader set of uh, issues. And the final thing I'll say about the Ferguson case that I think, you know, read this film alongside Walter Johnson's fantastic work that shows that, you know, the city of Ferguson could have more than made up for its budgetary shortfalls if it just didn't, you know, give tax abatements to big capital and corporations within the city limits of Ferguson they would have a budgetary surplus. And so I think that has stakes. And when we read the film alongside Johnson's work uh, about you know, where protests could be moved to. I um, think your point about primitive accumulation is really interesting. It's sort of thought of often, I think, as the um, historical primal scene of capitalism, but it's actually um, must be constantly enacted to, keep, to reproduce the political economic order as it is. I mean, this is it. I mean, you know, this has been argued for decades uh, by uh, Marxists like Peter Leinbaugh. Uh, there's also, you know, new work um, that's really exciting, like uh, Glenn Coltard's Red Skin, White Mass is trying to think about the ongoing character of primitive accumulation through the dispossession of indigenous peoples in, in Canada. And so, you know, we, what it does is it puts the question of what Marx called the force of circumstance you know, right at the front of the analytic about capital accumulation. And it means that on the left, we have to put violence, militarism, policing, and prisons right at the center of our analytic if we're going to um, confront, you know, capitalism in the current conjuncture. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I so I'm Canadian and I show this film in Canada. And one of the questions that I sometimes get is, what would this film look like if you had decided to set it in the Canadian context? Would it be very different? And of course, there's, you know, different historical um, events and contingencies, uh, but also some real parallels in, in, in terms of the way in which the, the Canadian carceral state has increased is maps alongside growing inequality and so on. But one of the things I'll often say, speaking of primitive accumulation, is that if I was trying to design a film in the Canadian context that looks to these outside spaces as demonstrative of the carceral regime in some way, 
the site that immediately comes to mind is an oil pipeline. And, you know, Canada is a, is a resource state dependent on oil money, and we hyper-incarcerate Indigenous people at uh, a rate actually even higher than, than African Americans are in, incarcerated in, in the U.S. I think uh, Indigenous women are 3% of the Canadian population, and, and uh, around 33% of the prison population. And one of the things our previous prime minister did before leaving power um, was uh, criminalize for the first time, make a felony crime of blockading oil pipelines, um, which tells us, I mean, I think so much about, um, you know, again, what the security apparatus of the state is put to work um, for. You know, is it, it, are people being protected, uh, safeguarded, or is it is it profit. And in this case, the people that are that are on the front lines blockading oil pipelines in the Canadian context are indigenous people because those p- pipelines are running through their land. Brett, I think you're really up, uh, upsetting our uh, MSNBC viewing uh, liberal listeners who pledged to move to Canada after Trump was elected. We do and still after have health That is elected. a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, now the uh, promised tough question. Um, one thing that the film clearly sets out to do is tell a story about prisons without reference or much reference to crime. Breaking, I think you, you phrased it, the, the crime and punishment nexus. First, I want to say that I think it was a very good choice and made good sense in the film. Prisons are everywhere and invisible, while crime, even though it's way, way down historically, remains ubiquitous via the evening news and Trump's electoral propaganda machine. And I like how you invert that. But I want to hear more about this because it's an issue that I have some ambivalence about. Incarceration rates, of course, didn't rise simply in response to crime, um, but because of a host of the political and economic factors that we've discussed. And rising incarceration rates um, played little to no role, researchers have found, in declining crime rates in recent years. But I've often questioned fellow leftists' approach on this question because interpersonal violence did indeed begin to skyrocket in the 1960s and was a real factor that shaped people's perceptions about crime and punishment. And it was those perceptions which were in some way tethered to actually existing violence and crime, bracketing that category of crime uh, for a moment. And that made it, and it's that perception, I would argue, that made it possible for mass incarceration um, to be developed for all these other reasons. Um, which relate to managing, as we've discussed, people rendered surplus by segregation, exclusion, neoliberalism. What's your take on how we should think about about crime? Sure, this is a great question. And, you know, I think it relates to what Jordan was saying about being cognizant of a sort of ideological landscape um, and, and my own sort of thinking about n- making a film that's going to exist alongside already existing cultural tropes. I, many years ago, I, I, I made a, when I was very young um, and just starting out to do this kind of work, I made a, a four-hour radio documentary about sex work. And I made it very much in conversation and collaboration with, with sex workers. And I remember starting to make that and thinking, okay, and talking to them about it and saying, okay, I'm going to have one episode on labor and, and sex work as work. I'm going to have another episode on um, gender. Uh, I want ha- 
to have one episode on violence and then one episode on something else. And they said, no, don't do an episode on violence. And I said, well, why not? Violence does occur in this work. I mean, you talk about it all the time. I've heard you talk about it. It's real. We can't pretend it's not real. And they said, of course it's real. We live with it. We know it's real. And we're dealing with it. And we're organizing around it. And we're trying to create conditions to um, make for less violence. But when other people represent issues around sex work uh, they they and talk about violence. That discourse only ever gets used against us. It never gets used to support us. And that's why you're not allowed to talk about violence. We get to talk about violence. And I feel sort of similarly about thinking about acknowledging and being real about interpersonal harm, <laughs> interpersonal violence, and people's desire to feel safe and in relation to the prison system. And I, I just think that the, there are already, you know, Insight Women of Color, um, Nia in Chicago, there are amazing organizing organizations and activists that are doing work that acknowledges, um, you know, uh, gender-based violence, um, uh, other kinds of domestic violence, other kinds of harm that are, that are real. And that my, my job is sort of different and, and sort of the ideological fabric um, that, that helps organize and reinforce the prison system is such that, that the idea of prisons as a response to crime is so seared into how we think about them that the possibility of thinking of life without prisons feels contingent on some sort of master plan to abolish or to get rid of all crime. And the suggestion of this film is, A, we know that prisons, they're, they're, the majority of their social functions have very little to do with with um, responding to crime, let alone resolving crime. Like, prisons cause harm. They don't alleviate it. But also, the the hope was that it might set up the possibility for alternatives to feel easier to construct. So if you think about the suggestion of the film, you know, in St. Louis is to suggest, hey, prisons here function as a, a part of a, a revenue generating scheme. Or in, in uh, eastern Kentucky, prisons here function um, as a job creation strategy. If we think about the prisons as, as playing that role rather than playing as a playing a, um, a role resolving or attempting to resolve crime and interpersonal harm and violence, then it actually becomes easier to collectively think of solutions, and people already have. You know, what are some other ways that we can create jobs for unemployed coal miners or for municipalities to pay their public workers um, other than extracting time uh, and, and resources from poor people and poor people of color? This is a great question, and I would not want to suggest that, you know, you don't have something that we could refer to as crime, that there's no property crimes, there's no credit card fraud, that there's no robberies, that, you know, uh, to take a maybe famous example, that you can't find any muggings, you know. Uh, but uh, to follow the lead of, of Stuart Hall, right, I think we should use the concept of a moral panic to, you know, dislodge the ways in which these actual material reference have been represented in kind of state and mass media discourses in ways that exceed the actual threat, right? And then purport to justify the state's, you know, authoritarian resolution of what are essentially social and economic problems, right? So the ways that the film does this is 
to show that, you know, people have problems. They don't have jobs. Or if they do have jobs, they have low wages. They can't, you know, they don't want to pay a $170 fine for having a detached uh, trash lid, as one scene uh, vividly puts it, right? So, okay, so, you know, uh, or even take, you know, Another uh, way in which, you know, the broken windows narrative says, okay, these small crime crimes of disorder are going to lead kind of inevitably to violence and murders the way that it goes. And I think what Brett's film does is to join an effort by scholars, by activists, by uh, artists to um, offer a critique of these moral panics, to uh, illuminate the material causes and consequences uh, of prison expansion and to illuminate, again, the ways in which I think, you know, demands for redistributive justice could help, you know, solve those social and economic problems that, you know, prisons actually uh, aggravate uh, rather than prevent. I entirely agree, obviously, that prisons aggravate rather than prevent uh, the the crime that they're supposed to be controlling and dealing with. But my my concern about not including the people on the left not including crime in the discussion is that it is it is real and it seeds it's an empirical reality and it seeds that subject to the right. Mm-hmm. And people know it's real because they experience it or um, or you know because they don't but see it on the news. Either way, it's a it's a subject. And then when we don't talk about it, um, Trump's certainly there talking about it. Um, and another worry that I have is um, if focusing on people getting locked up for small-time things or Mickey Mouse offenses, as one person in the film puts it, um, if that risks us falling into the trap of perpetuating the popular but false belief that prisons are mostly filled um, with people convicted of nonviolent offenses, and as a result, uh, giving people the mistaken belief um, of what sort of task lies ahead of us if we truly want to work to end mass incarceration, which includes thinking through some very, very difficult things about how, as a society, we deal with people who do things that are sometimes, frankly, horrible, um, murder, rape, et cetera. I mean, this is right. I'll just say briefly um, it, that I would still stand by the uh, useful category of analysis of a moral panic. To come back to the film, I mean, you know, one of the scenes in L.A. is about sex offenders. I mean, this is an instance of you know, a a crime where people have indeed committed it, you know, in some instances. And that, you know, and I think we would uh, agree that we need to talk about that, but we also need to challenge the ways in which, you know, the fears and anxieties about, you know, these harms then, again, you know, legitimate a a carceral management of a problem that I don't think, um, you know, produces the ends that you want. Instead, it, it, it justifies its expansion. I mean, to go back to Gottschall quickly, in her first book called The Prisons and the Gallows, she talks about how feminism and the women's movement, you know, responding to real violence against, against women, right, were then the key legitimators for carceral state expansion. And there's a big kind of now discourse now about, you know, carceral uh, feminism. And so I think what we have to do is to think about alternative ways of addressing uh, harm that don't require an authoritarian uh, carceral state form. Yeah, and for me, you know, this is part of my own personal feelings, critical feelings and um, and politics around the prison system. I mean, one of the thing, one of the reasons that I feel the uh, an urgency about um, 
and a commitment to prison abolition is precisely because the prison occupies this a space that that um, we we need to occupy in order to resolve these real phenomena of um, gender-based violence and and other kinds of harm. And insofar as the prison pretends to resolve these um, problems, it absolves us of doing the work or finding, pouring resources into new strategies that would actually, you know, help resolve rape epidemics and other forms of um, devastating um, harms that occur every day. And, and, you know, there's, again, that scene that, that takes place in LA is around has to do with the the construction of a tiny park um, on the sort of basis and and um, you know gesturing towards this moral panic around sex offenders. It, this city councilor built a, a park um, to force 33 registered sex offenders from living in a nearby halfway house, and did so you know on the basis that spatial restrictions in the state of California dictate that you're not allowed to. If you have a, if you have sex offender status, you're not allowed to be found within 2,000 feet of a school or a park. So the city measured out the neighborhood, built this park, and forced 33 registered sex offenders to to leave. And it contributes to false ideas about where danger are. I mean, we know sex offenses, like actual you know harms produced by by um, gender based violence and sex violence, don't occur in public spaces by strangers. They occur in, in locker rooms, and they occur, you know, it's in domestic, private spaces, homes, um, churches. And so the sort of way in which that absolves us of recognizing where harm actually is taking place, let alone um, the capacity to develop real tools to help dismantle those structures of violence, um, are part of why I think we need collectively to rethink the prison system. Brett and Jordan, thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. This has been great. Really appreciate you having us on the show. Brett Story, amongst many other things, is the director and producer of The Prison in 12 Landscapes. Jordan Camp is a scholar of mass incarceration and policing. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting a new episode every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Liza Yeager, music by Jeffrey Bodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please search us out on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts and subscribe. And on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. They help introduce us to new listeners as does telling your friends, so please do that too. And also, find us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing a going concern. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. (laughs) 